But while you guys are flipping open to Nahum chapter one, uh, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and Lord, we thank you so much that we get to come and we get to worship you, Father God, openly and freely, Father, that there is none who is restricting us, that there is none who is stopping us except ourselves. But we are here this morning, Lord, we're opening up your word because we know you still speak. We know that your word is necessary and needful for today. And so, Lord, as we turn to your word, we turn with expectation that you will speak to us and that you would give us the power and the desire to obey through Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So the book of Nahum, as the title suggests, are the prophecies given by the prophet who bears the same name, Nahum. And as I was going through the book of Nahum and I was reading all the verses and and seeing the overall arching theme of it, here's the theme that I have for the book of Nahum. God cares. God cares. And and it might strike you with a little bit of wonder because Nahum is all about the destruction of Nineveh. But the message of Nahum is this, God cares. God cares about sin, but God also cares about his people. And that's what we find in the message of Nahum. These prophecies were given both to warn Nineveh, again for the second time, but also to encourage Judah. You see, Judah was still under persecution, still under oppression by the Assyrian nation, Nineveh being the capital of that. And while in Jonah's time, which is about 100 years before Nahum, Nineveh repented. Nineveh was saved. They were spared another hundred some odd years. When Nahum comes and he prophesies, Nineveh does not listen. Nineveh will be destroyed. And as Nineveh is destroyed and judged, God's message to the people of Judah is that I'm protecting you. That I've seen, that I've heard, that I care. In fact, the name Nahum, it's a shortened version of the name Nehemiah. And his name, Nehemiah, means comfort of Yahweh. And the shortened version means comfort. And so Nahum brings a message of comfort for Judah. God comfort comes from both his carrying out judgment and also from his protection. You see, the comfort is this. God cares to punish sin. So when we see horrible tragedies as what's going on and the different people being slaughtered innocently, the the different things of people carrying out wickedness and seemingly getting away with it. This is the message of God. He's going to punish sin. But the other message of God is this. As he punishes sin, he is not going to punish the righteous with the wicked. And God will protect his people. We may in this life, as Jesus promised, have troubles and tribulations. But there's coming a time when he will deal with sin and God will protect his people. Those troubles and tribulations we have will never remove us from the presence of God. The trouble that God's people had never removed them from being his people. And so I find the theme verses of Nahum are are at two separate ends of chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. 
The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He's furious with his enemies. But also Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in a day of distress. And he cares for those who take refuge in him. So on that you see both sides of God. And that God cares. God cares to be jealous and avenging for his people. And God also cares to also be a stronghold in a day of distress for those who take refuge in him. Now, Nahum is known as Nahum the Elkoshite, as we see in verse one. It suggests that Nahum is from a place called Elkosh, which this is the only place in the Bible you find that. You don't hear of an Elkosh anywhere else. There's no other, um, nothing else is known about it except for what's written right here. So the idea is that Elkosh may have been in the region of Galilee. And specifically, it could have been the city of Capernaum. You see, Capernaum was named after Nahum. The formal name of Capernaum would be pronounced Kephar Nahum, or city of Nahum. And so God cares for the sin of Nineveh, but God also cares for his people in Judah. And although slow to anger, the Lord does not ignore the guilty. And God speaks comfort through Nahum to his people to maintain faith because they will be afflicted by Assyria no longer. And I believe that the same message in Nahum is available for us today, that we need to maintain the faith because the wicked that we see prevailing today will not prevail always because our God is coming back and he will judge. And so that brings us to Nahum chapter one. And the title of my message this morning is God avenges. So we see that God cares because God avenges. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 1, if you guys would follow along with me, it says, This is the pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes and he is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and and storm and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither. Even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress, and he cares for those who take refuge in him. But he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood, and he will chase his enemies into darkness. Whatever you plot against the Lord, he will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time. For they will be consumed like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard, and like the straw that is fully dry. One has gone out from you who plots evil against the Lord and is a wicked counselor. This is what the Lord says. Though they are strong and numerous, they will still be mowed down and he will pass away. Though I have punished you, I will punish you no longer. For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued an order concerning you. There will be no offspring to carry on your name, 
And I will eliminate the carved idol and cast image from the house of your gods. And I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Look to the mountains, the feet of the herald who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows for the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. And so we see that, that first proclamation from Nahum both against Nineveh and also as a promise to Judah. And what we see here is as God avenges, he declares his anger. God's anger is declared. And this is not a topic that many people will speak on. Everybody wants to talk about God's holiness. They'll talk about God's love. They'll talk about God's goodness. But if you start talking about God's anger, they're done. They don't want to hear it. But the truth is, is God does have anger and anger is not sinful. Now, when we read in verses like James, where it says, be slow to speak, quick, quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to get angry because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Our anger is unrighteous. God's anger is righteous. And that's what we see here in the first five verses. We see the pronouncement, the pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite says the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. He takes vengeance against his foes and he is furious with his enemies. That all speaks on the the anger of the Lord, but we know this about the anger of the Lord also. It says the Lord is slow to anger, but he's great in power and the Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea, dries it up, makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Kamel wither, and even the flower of Lebanon withers. It says, the mountains quake before him, and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation, and who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, even rocks are shattered before him. It's a picture of God's wrath and it being poured out upon those who have called for it. It's an oracle or a burden that Nahum is bringing. That that word vision is translated also oracle or burden. And many times the prophets were burdened with a message. Their, Their heart could do no other, but it hurt them to proclaim this. None of them ever proclaimed the judgment of God with a smile on their face. It's a heavy message with weighty importance. It's a burden of Nineveh's doom. The, the once great revival that we read about in the book of Jonah has changed. And the people, instead of repenting, continue to rebel against God and provoke God. And now they will be wiped out. So Nahum's message and vision, it starts off with the declaration, the description concerning the Lord. And the first description we get is that the Lord is a jealous God. How is it that God is jealous? Well, I'm going to tell you this. He's not jealous in the same sense that we're jealous. You see, our jealousy comes from the idea that we are jealous of each other that we lack something that someone else has or that someone else has something that we want. 
God is not a God who has need of anything. Therefore, that's not his jealousy. God is jealous in the sense of the fact that God is also love. His jealousy is actually a part of his love. And he would not be loving if he were not jealous. You see, God's jealousy is not about his losing, but it's about our hurting. His jealousy comes from his love that he has. And it's not that same jealous love that we find where we're you know, cautious of those people that go, well, if I can't have them, then no one can. That's not the jealousy that God has. But God's love for us is such that, that he is jealous for our safety, our protection, and our salvation. You see, God's jealousy is love and action. He refuses to share our heart with anything else. That's what he's jealous of. He wants our devotion with him, not towards anything else. Our hearts before him, he knows, determines our moral direction. The more our hearts are inclined towards the Lord, the more moral we are. The more our hearts are turned away from the Lord, the less moral we are. You see, God is not jealous of us. He's jealous for us, according to David Guzik, one of my favorite Bible commentators. His love is righteous and true, and he would not be loving if he were not jealous. And so jealousy here, in, in the terms of speaking of God's jealousy, it's a fiercely protective and unaccepting of disloyalty. The next declaration that we see is that God is not only a jealous God, but he's also an avenging God. You see, his jealousy determines that he must avenge. Nahum provides a description of God's vengeance too. It says that the Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. You see, the Lord exercises his right to vengeance. And when he does it, it's described as being fierce with wrath. It's the wrath of God. That's another subject nobody is comfortable talking about or, or hearing about. But the truth is, is that God does have a wrath that he is storing up. And it said time and time again in scripture, as nations rebel against God, he says, I am going to judge them, but it's not yet here because the cup of my wrath is not full yet. When Christ was in the garden of Gethsemane, when he said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. It's because he knew he had to drink the cup of the Lord's wrath that was poured up and filled for sin. The Lord takes vengeance because of his wrath, but the Lord takes vengeance only on his enemies and foes. You see, his wrath is nothing like our wrath. In our wrath, we... Everyone better watch out if we're on the war path, right? If we're, if we're ready to let our wrath out, everybody just better get out of our... It doesn't matter if we're mad at you or anybody else. Unfortunately, this is what happens at home in our house, right? We go off to work or we go out to the store or we're driving on the road. Somebody upsets us. We bring it home. We take it out on everybody. God doesn't do that. God doesn't take it out on everybody. His wrath... And his vengeance is focused only on his enemies and his foes. But know this, it's everyone who stands against God that invites his wrath and his vengeance. You see, it's because God is jealous that he's also an avenging God. And he avenges his people against his enemies 
And Judah was his people. And the enemies of Judah are the enemies of God. This is a New Testament idea as well. Paul says, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. And that's because when he repays, he can do it righteously. He can do it in full goodness. None of us is able to revenge, avenge, or get vengeance righteously. That's why God says it is reserved for me alone. The next description is that through his wrath, that though his wrath brings vengeance, God is not a capricious God that's sitting up there going, I can't believe you did that today. That's it. I'm totally ticked off at you. You did it. And tomorrow's going to be worse. You do it again. No, God is a uh, God who is slow to anger. And he's slower to anger than any of us will ever be. He's slower to anger than any of us believe he should be, if we're honest. Unless it's dealing with us. Then we're like, man, Lord, you got mad way too quick. You need to be a little bit more uh, merciful towards me. But that other guy, the one that cut me off on the free, go get him, Lord. No patience. He deserves it. However, he's slow to anger, but many people, and if we're honest, even ourselves, we mistake his long suffering as either indifference or inability. We think either God doesn't really care or God isn't going to care. Oh God, I, I know I did that thing that you told me not to, but since you didn't punish me, I guess it's okay. And we take God not acting in that moment as his permission also, even though his word de- definitively says no. We go, well, he didn't do anything, so I guess it's okay. We did that at home too, right? If mom and dad didn't punish us, then it's okay. And we'll do it again. Or we think it's an ability when something happens to us and we say, God, where's my vengeance? Why aren't you fighting for me? Why are they allowed to get away with this? Why were they able to do that? I can guarantee you there's an entire town in Buffalo. There's an entire town in Uvalde and, and many others that have been torn apart. Here in El Paso, there's many families that are still wondering, where were you, God, when evil was taken away from me? And so we think that because he's slow to anger, to punish evil and wickedness, that he might be unable to do it. And so we start to get a lower view of God. And I believe that that's what was happening with Nineveh. You see, when Jonah first came through and proclaimed his, his um, you know, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And Nineveh goes, you know what? Let's not be destroyed. Let's repent. Maybe God will forgive us. Because they had just gone through so many tragedies and so many calamities that they were like, we need God. But now they've gotten to the point where they're like, well, we've been treating the Jews like this for for a long time. God hasn't done anything. And we defeated the northern kingdom. So maybe, maybe God's okay with what we're doing. And so they, or he's just unable. Maybe their God is weak now. That's why Nahum states that though God is slow to anger, he's great in power. And he will never And that's emphatic in the original language. He will never leave the guilty unpunished. 
That, that's a promise that we have. That's a comfort for us. That God will never leave the guilty unpunished. And along with that comes with this. God will never acquit the wicked. He will never pardon an unpaid or an unpunished sin. Every sin has to be paid for, either by the sinner at judgment, through hell, or it's at the cross of Jesus Christ. Those are the only ways that your sins are dealt with. And God will not forgive any sin except in those two. God, God will not leave any sin unpunished except in those two extremes. And that's why the apostle Peter tells us the Lord does not delay his promises. Some understand delay or other versions say the Lord is not long suffering and, and, and does not delay in such that, but his long suffering is that he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Because right now we find ourselves in this period of time known as the age of grace in which God's salvation that was bought at a high price on the cross by Jesus Christ is able to go through the world through the proclamation of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit so that those who would bow and bend and humble themselves before Christ would have salvation before God, forgiveness for their sins. This exact sentiment, it was on display when God sent Jonah to Nineveh a hundred years before. But though he prolongs his mercy... His power for judgment remains. His power, let's, let's look at his power and see how it's described. It's described as a, he's in the whirlwind. Think of a tornado, a typhoon. God is in that. He's in the storm. His voice is over the sea. As God speaks and as God does the mountains quake, Hills melt, the earth trembles at his presence and all who are in it. And those people that think, well, on judgment day, I'm going to stand before God and give him my two cents. That ain't going to happen. Because God has great power. And so the Nahum posits two questions. Who can withstand his indignation? And who can endure his burning anger? And that's why the Bible teaches that if we wait until judgment time and we think we're going to stand before God, we're going to fall and we're not going to last. That's why it's referred to as the second death, the lake of fire. No one will stand. No one will find an excuse because God gave an opportunity for mercy and repentance but make no mistake about its absolute necessity and certainty. Without change or repentance, judgment must come and no one can withstand or endure. And so what we see next from Nahum and what the Lord speaks through him is the destruction of Nineveh and it's described. Verse seven, he says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress and he cares for those who take refuge in him. But... He will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood and he will chase his enemies into darkness. Whatever you plot against the Lord, he will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time for they will be consumed like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard, like the straw that is fully dry. This is one who's gone out from you, plots evil against the Lord and is a wicked counselor. 
The last description that Nahum gives of God is in relation to his vision concerning the destruction of Nineveh. He says, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in a day of distress. He says, though the Lord is wrathful, though the Lord is an avenger, though he's taking vengeance, God is nonetheless good. He's a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares about those who take refuge in him. He is a fortress in times of trouble, but only for those who trust in him. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. And here's the thing. His goodness is always in line with his faithful love. It's tied to it. It's faithful and it's merciful, protecting, helpful, and caring. That's all the goodness of God. That's why we love to sing about the goodness of God. Psalm 106.1, hallelujah, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. In Exodus 34.6, I'm going to show you the New King James Version and the CSB Version that we use here. In the New King James, it says, And the Lord has passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and check this out, abounding in goodness and truth. And here's how the CSB translates that. The Lord passed in front of him, proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. Do you see that his goodness and his faithful love are inextricably tied? And then the prophet Jeremiah 33.11 says, A sound of joy and gladness, the voice of the groom and the bride, and the voice of those saying, Give thanks to the Lord of armies, for the Lord is good. His faithful love endures forever. See, he's good because of his faithful love. His faithful love is because he's good. But here's why Nahum points that out to Nineveh. He says, despite all that being true, none of it applies to you. Because God will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood. And that may be talking about the, the army that comes in and takes over because Assyria was wiped out by Babylon. Babylon will be wiped out by Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia will be wiped out by the Greeks. And then the Greeks will be wiped out by the Romans. We know this through history. It was also prophesied by the Lord hundreds of years before it happened. The people of Nineveh thought they were safe. But their security is short-lived, especially compared to the comfort and safety that God provides for his people, right? You see, we live in a time where to be God's people requires something of us. Sometimes it requires pain, trouble, trials. Here in America, it requires ridicule and being made fun of and people thinking we're silly or dumb or ignorant or however you put it. In other parts of the world, it requires them to lose their head, lose their life, lose their livelihood and all that. But it's better than the alternative. Because to be without God means you have no safety. And Nineveh found that out. Without God, you have no safety. Nineveh had repented once and was spared destruction, but now they continued unrepentant in their sin against Judah. And Assyria, make no mistake, 
God used Assyria as his vehicle to punish the northern kingdom of Israel. But they kind of started thinking themselves and they said, you know what? We're going to come against Judah and we're going to take Judah too. Obviously God's done with his people, so we're going to take him out. But you know what? God used him as his vehicle and he never lost control. And so he, they plotted to take it all, but God didn't allow it. And Nahum declares that whatever they plot against the Lord, he brings to complete destruction. There's nobody who's going to come up with a plan and God's going to go, oh no, I didn't think of that one. How did they ever get that out of my hand? How did they wrestle that out of my control? And so he's going to bring it to complete destruction, such complete destruction that Nahum declares oppression will not rise up a second time. That is how completely you will be wiped out, Nineveh. The completeness of their destruction and the swiftness of it indicates how ripe they were for judgment and how complete the judgment of God is. He even says that it will be like the drink of the drunkard. And at first I'm like, well, what does that mean? How many drunkards do you know of that leaves anything left in the bottle? It also says that it'll be like the straw that is dry. That indicates somebody who continues to suck through the straw until there's nothing coming through it again. That means completely empty, completely gone, completely wiped out. But in the midst of that, Nahum declares the deliverance of Judah from the kingdom of Assyria. This is what the Lord says. Though they are strong and numerous, they will still be mowed down and he will pass away. Though I've punished you, I will punish you no longer. For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued an order concerning you. There will be no offspring to carry your name and I will eliminate the carved idol, the cast image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Look to the mountains, the feet of the herald who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows. For the wicked one will never again march through you and he will be entirely wiped out. So Nahum now proclaims the promise of deliverance to Judah. Do you see how God avenging is both a a scary thought and also a comfort depending on where you are, whether or not you're an enemy of God or not? He says, though the Assyrians are strong and numerous, and they were, they they, they were like a a swarm of locusts as they came in and and they marched through. But look at what God says. He doesn't say it'll be any trouble. He describes it. He says, they will be mowed down. Nineveh's gone unscathed. No enemy has ever penetrated her defenses. Her inhabitants were many. And God promised in his vengeance, she would be completely cut down, vanish, and pass away. And they did. God used Assyria to afflict Israel and Judah, but like I said, God remained in control always. And the Lord has issued an order. That's the next thing Nahum describes. He says, the Lord has issued this order. That's a decree from the highest throne. There is nobody who can thwart that order. There is nobody who can say, nope, I veto it. And he says that Assyria will be wiped out Without offspring, none of their false gods will remain. They are contemptible before the Lord, and therefore he has prepared their grave. And it is God's promise of vengeance against Assyria that gives Judah the promise of protection. You see, the God who avenges is the God who also protects and delivers. Without avenging, 
there is no delivering. And Nahum proclaims, Judah, celebrate, fulfill your vows, for the wicked one will never march again through you, and you'll be wiped, and will never march again through you, and they will be wiped out. Nineveh will experience fall and judgment, while Judah would experience freedom. And here's the truth. Nineveh, from that judgment there, when, when they marched through and took them out, Nineveh was never rebuilt again. One, one King Xenophon, uh, as he was going through and conquering, he passed by the site 200 years later, and he assumed that the ruins was another city. Alexander the Great, fighting nearby, didn't even realize how close he was to Nineveh. None of these guys, because what ended up happening was usually you'd go through and conquer and you'd see a city and you'd be like, okay, I'm going to build it up again. None of these guys even saw Nineveh. They didn't even realize where Nineveh was. That's how completely destroyed it was. And here's the, con- the contrast between the fate of the godly and the wicked. And that's nothing but good news. It's good news for Nahum. It's good news for the, for the people of Judah but it's good news for those who are the people of God, for those who are alive today in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 52.7 uses a similar expression as what we find here, but Isaiah marvels at the beauty of the feet of him who brings good news. Nahum would agree because those who bring good tidings have beautiful feet. How wonderful it is for those who walk and carry the good news. They partner with God for the salvation of men. Feet speak of activity, motion, progress. Those who are active, those who are moving in the work of preaching the gospel, they have beautiful feet. In Isaiah, the good news is this. The Messiah is coming. In Nahum, the good news is this. God will defeat your enemies. And the Baker commentary says, Rejoicing is not in this context gleeful or gloating at the misfortune of others. Rather, the rejoicing is a pleasure at the vindication of God and his promises. You see, the God that Nahum introduces us to is the God that we need to be acquainted with. We need to be acquainted with the God who is a jealous God the God who has anger that is turned towards sin, evil, and wickedness while also tempering that with that God is a good God who cares for his people. We have to consider both the goodness and the severity of God because that's the only way we come before God with that that awestruck, awesome mentality that we need to have before a high, holy God. So we can have that attitude of reverence before him because God is a consuming fire for those who are set against him. His fury poured out like fire, but he doesn't want us to be fearful in that sense. He wants us to know that he is also a refuge for those who trust in him. Nineveh is going to receive judgment that was turned away at the time of Jonah, like I said. And while God did not judge the city at that time, it does not mean that God would continue to ignore for future generations who choose to sin and rebel. We know that all too well. Though America was built, and as we believe, 
blessed by God grown up in that. It didn't indicate that God was always going to bless America because once America turned its back on God and turned its back on God's people, we know that God has promised that there would be judgment for the nation that does that. Unfortunately, for those of us who love God and live in this nation, we have to watch that happen. Knowing what can stop it And the only thing that we can do, and the most thing that we can do, is share the gospel. Bring people to Christ. We need to understand that God does not ignore future generations who choose to sin and rebel. We need to understand that though God is slow to anger, he does get angry. And there's coming a time where he will be past mercy. That should drive us to not only go out and preach the gospel to see men repent, but that should also drive men who hear the gospel to repent. Knowing that we might find ourselves in a time of grace and mercy right now, but we cannot continue to presume on God's patience and long suffering. And so if you're here this morning and you're hearing this and you've been putting it off and you're like, well, I'll I'll continue to wait. Maybe, Maybe I'll give my life to God tomorrow or maybe I'll give my life to God later or maybe when I get everything in order. We need to come to the realization that we can't put it off because we don't know at that point at which it runs out. Because when it runs out, that time of grace is over. And it's only the time of judgment. But I also want you guys to take comfort. And I believe that the Lord has spoken great comfort through Nahum's message. And it's this. As you look out on that world and you see things going on, you might go, man, God's just taking his hands off of it. He, he just doesn't care. God is not out of touch with the world. He is actually intimately interested in it. So much so that he sent his one and only son to be born as a human. Something we can't even fathom. All of deity encompassed and, and, and expressed in human flesh. And Jesus lived as a man and bore the sins of men. And then he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he took the full brunt of all of God's vengeance and wrath towards sin. And, and, and see the beauty in this. God's vengeance on sin provided the deliverance for those who would accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For those who would repent and take that free offer of salvation under the grace of God. Finding refuge in Christ. You see, without forgiveness, of, without forgiveness, no one would ever experience the love of God. Without the forgiveness of Christ, no one would ever experience the love of God. And instead they would receive the full fury, brunt fire of his wrath. And so this morning, with it being the first Sunday of the month, we're going to partake of communion. And I've asked a couple of guys to come up and help me with the communion. So we're going to go ahead and... Uh, Have that handed out. 
And what we're going to do is as they're handing out, I'm just going to ask that you hold on to the communion because we'll partake together. And I do want to put a warning out there. If you are here this morning and you are not in Christ Jesus, do not take communion. It is the equivalent of drinking and eating judgment upon yourself. But I have a better option. Instead of skipping it, understand that now is the time of grace and today is the day of salvation. And it's through the name of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on the cross that you can ask for forgiveness for your sins through his name. And then you will, it says, as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. And then we can all sit at God's table and partake of communion together. And instead of drinking judgment upon yourself, now you drink the protection, the refuge, the promise of God's deliverance. And so Paul, when he was instituting the Lord's Supper to the early church in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, Paul wrote, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you, that on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. You proclaim the Lord's wrath and fury satisfied until he comes again to come and take us to himself, to deliver us. We look forward to that glorious day, Lord, when your son comes back for us. We thank you so much for your word from the prophet Nahum, Father. To, to us, it may be an obscure, an obscure prophet, but Lord, such a clear word from you. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, Father. Not only uh, the urgency of the time that we live in, not only the necessity of the spreading of the gospel, Father God, but Lord, the promise that you've given each and every one of us, that you would deliver your people, that you are a refuge for all who trust in you. No matter what's going on around us, no matter what's going on in our life, no matter what things we think are happening against us, Father God, you have not left us. You still remain our refuge, our strong tower, our place of security and deliverance. In Jesus' name, amen.